The title of our message this morning is The Problem of Jesus. And the problem of Jesus is this. It's not a problem that Jesus has. It's the problem of Jesus. And the problem is that Jesus cannot be ignored. That the message of Jesus warrants a response. And today is your reminder to respond to Jesus. How is he speaking to you? Has he been trying to get your attention? I believe he has because he's the one who always pursues us. It is time to respond to him. The reality is he can't really be ignored, do, nor do we actually really want to ignore him. In fact, the book of Acts tells us just that. Jesus is so radical. Jesus is so life-changing. Jesus is so worthy of our attention that the world could not ignore him. The book of Acts records the spread of the gospel and the birth of the church and the advancement of the church. And the book of Acts shows us that the kingdom of God and the advancement of the church is unstoppable, that the world could not ignore Jesus. Now, in Acts chapter 1, just before Jesus ascended into heaven, in verse 8, he said these important words. It's really the outline of the book of Acts. In verse 8, he says, You, speaking to the disciples or his followers, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, or witnesses to me, in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, Sumeria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, chapters 1 and 2 record the empowerment part, where the Holy Spirit comes upon the church. And then chapters 1 through 12 really records the advancement or the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria. And then we come across Acts chapter 13, where we are this morning. And Acts 13 is a transitory chapter. There's a transition that's taking place, where now the gospel is spreading to the ends of the earth. And it's all kind of centralized or focuses in on a specific person. That person is Paul. So from Acts 13 onward, it's just following Paul and his missionary journeys as the gospel is spreading to the ends of the earth, how Jesus could not be ignored on a world scale. And as we look at this, Acts 13 inserts now a sermon of Paul's. Now, it's not the first sermon of Paul's, but it's the first sermon recorded of Paul's. And part of the reason why Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, does this is he's trying to give us insight into how the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. And we see this insight in Paul's sermon. In fact, it's there in verse 16 at the very beginning. We read that Paul starts out motioning with his hands and he says, men of Israel and those who fear God. Paul's approach as he's going to enter the earth is that he, as a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Jewish man, he would go to a Jew- Jewish synagogue and he would first speak to the Jewish people, those men of Israel. But then in the attendance there, there was also those who fear God. And those people, that line, those were non-Jewish, non-Jewish followers of Israel's God. They were Gentiles who followed the God of Israel. 
But there, even in that phrase, shows us the pattern of how the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. As Paul begins to move west, he would go to a synagogue, he would preach to the Jews first, he would try to show the Jews about Jesus, connect Jesus to the Old Testament prophecies and scriptures, and upon rejection of Jesus, he would then move to the non-Jewish audience or the Gentiles, where the Gentiles would readily receive him and the message of the gospel. But this morning, the big picture is this. Before we dive into all this, the big picture of this, Jesus cannot be ignored on a global scale and on a personal scale, on a global level and a personal level. Jesus cannot be ignored. Jesus demands our attention because of who he is. Now, in our time together, we're going to break down Paul's sermon this way. First, we're going to see the revelation of Jesus from verses 16 to 29. Number two, we're going to see the resurrection of Jesus from verses 30 to 41. And number three, we're going to see the response to Jesus from verses 42 to 52. Are you with me? Did I lose you already? I'll slow down. I'll promise. Just a little bit later. We're going to speed through the first part. Okay. Number one, the revelation of Jesus. Read with me verse 17. Paul starts off his sermon. He says this. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Jim Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had Saul removed, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Verse 23. From, from, from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, that is, Jesus. The first thing that Paul does here as he's speaking to the Jewish audience is he reveals Jesus or connects Jesus to Israel's history. Throughout the over, their overview of their history, Paul's focusing in on the faithfulness of God. In those few verses, we saw the faithfulness of God to choose Israel, to deliver them from Egypt, to provide for them in the wilderness, to conquer the Canaanites and give them the promised land, to raise up judges and prophets, and to establish a kingdom. Now, even more specifically, Paul is emphasizing God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises. We see this in verse 23. Really, all of their history, he's pointing them to Jesus, and he inserts Jesus in verse 23. He says, from this man's seed, referring to David, according to the promise, which was the Davidic covenant, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Here, Paul quickly introduces his listeners to Jesus as the promised Savior of Israel. And this promise he's referring to is the promise of the Davidic covenant. The covenant that God makes to David, which is echoed in the Psalms, but originates in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When God makes a covenant promise with David that ends with this, it'll be on the screen. 2 Samuel 7 verse 16. He says to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure 
forever. Everyone say forever. Forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. God promised an eternal kingdom to David. God promised that from David's descendants would come an eternal king. And here, Paul identifies Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promise to David. According to Paul, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Okay, now we've gone swimming for a second. Let's come up for a breath of fresh air. Little point of application. Paul is highlighting the faithfulness of God over centuries to his chosen people, the nation of Israel. Did you know that you are God's chosen person? Do you know that God has chosen you? Did you know that God has promises for you? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Did you know he promises that he'll never leave you or forsake you? Do you know he promises that he will give you a peace, not as the world gives, but a different peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding? Do you know that God has promises for you? Do you know that God is faithful to fulfill his promises even when we're faithless? This is what he's highlighting here to the nation of Israel. He, they are God's chosen people. God initiated the relationship with Israel. He chose them. And through all of their faithlessness and through all of the ups and downs of their, their history, God was with them and he was faithful to them to fulfill his promises. And he will be faithful to you. That's the breath of fresh air. But continuing. To validate this point, Paul makes references to how the life of Jesus fulfills Bible prophecy. To the Jewish audience, he's trying to link Jesus as the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And then he's trying to show how even the life of Jesus itself was a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Read with me in verse 24 and on. After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandal of whose feet I'm not worthy to lose. Now the Jewish people were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for the Savior. They were looking for the promised one. And they thought maybe just maybe John the Baptist was the Savior, was the Messiah. And John himself testified saying that I'm not. That there's one more worthy than me. He's, he's the Messiah, he's Savior. And John the Baptist points him to Jesus. But they didn't get it. So he continues, verse 26. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham... Those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. Though they found no cause of death in him, speaking of Jesus, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. What Paul does here is he brings up, he, he bridges it all their history to David. Then he bridges David to Jesus. And then he shows how Jesus is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy and that John the Baptist understood this. See, John's an interesting character. 
John the Baptist was the bridge between the promises and the prophecies of the Savior and the fulfillment of those prophecies. Even John himself had prophecies about him in the Old Testament scriptures. That there would be one in the wilderness crying out and making way for the Savior, for the Messiah. Well, John was the fulfillment of those prophecies. That he himself would prophesy about Jesus. But John himself was also the one who baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. And he was the one who really made way for the fulfillment of all those prophecies. So John is this bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Between promise and prophecy and fulfillment. And this is what Paul is trying to show them. See, the thing with the Old Testament is that the Old Testament was full of prophecies of when the Messiah would come, of what the Savior would look like, and that when he came, that the people would reject him. That his own people would reject him. So Paul here is contrasting the life of John the Baptist and the other religious leaders of that time. John understood the prophecies. John understood the promise and received Jesus as the Savior and Messiah. But the other religious leaders, they didn't understand the prophecies. He says that they didn't even understand the prophets. They're reading the prophecies every single Sabbath. It was right there before them, but they were ignoring them. They ignored Jesus to such a degree that they actually have him killed on a cross. He's cursed on a tree. So there's this contrast between John the Baptist understanding these things and the religious leaders rejecting Jesus. This is the thing. The same religious leaders wouldn't be able to ignore the prophecies anymore. The same religious leaders that tried to ignore Jesus and Jesus was killed, the religious leaders were still alive. And they could not ignore Jesus. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus. Because we come to verse 30 where we read, But God raised him from the dead. Here Paul pivots and focuses in on the resurrection of Jesus from verses 30 to 41. And the resurrection of Jesus changes absolutely everything. Everything hinges is founded upon the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Jesus could be ignored. Jesus could be dismissed. Jesus could be overlooked. Paul later admits this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, where we read this. If Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. Jesus was just some character. It was some fable, some fairy tale. It wasn't true unless Jesus rose from the grave. The resurrection changes absolutely everything. So now Paul is honing in on to the resurrection, that Jesus cannot be ignored, that the prophecies could not be ignored, that the person could not be ignored, because Jesus rose from the grave. Without the resurrection, Christianity is meaningless. Our faith is meaningless. So we see this pattern in Paul's writings and in his sermons, that every sermon and all of the writings of Paul, he makes a huge emphasis On the resurrection of Jesus. And the first thing that we see when it comes to Paul preaching the resurrection. Is Paul preached the resurrection as a fact. We see this in verse 31. We read. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Who are his witnesses. Everyone say witnesses. 
witnesses to the people. It's important to know, Paul is stating that the resurrection is not simply a philosophy or a theology, but it was an historical event that took place. See, philosophy and theology can be argued. Even history nowadays is being argued. But the facts of an event cannot be disputed. To be honest with you, sometimes facts can be kind of annoying. Right now, this week, I was compiling together some statistics about Gen Z because we're about to host a conference for young leaders and youth pastors. And as I was compiling these statistics, I came across a fact that one out of three Gen Zers, only one out of three Gen Zers, feel loved by someone close to them. Let that sink in. Only one out of three Gen Zers, born between 1999 and 2012, only one out of three, 33%, feel loved by someone close to them. That's heartbreaking. I wish that wasn't true. I wish I could overlook that fact and dismiss that fact and argue and dispute that fact. But the reality is the fact is just a fact and it has to be received. This is the thing with facts. Sometimes they're annoying. Sometimes we don't like them, but we have to receive them. Now, when it comes to events, there's different events. There's birth. There's death. There's marriage. There's divorce. There's a diagnosis. And all of those things have evidence. They're an event that took place. There's a certificate. There's a witness. There's something to prove that there was the birth, that there was the death, that there was the divorce, the marriage, or the diagnosis. There's evidence of it. It was an event. It just is. We simply have to receive it. This is how Paul talked about the resurrection. And this is why Jesus can't be ignored. This is why Christianity can't be ignored on a global scale and on a personal scale because it all hinges on an event that there's this claim that Jesus was dead, but now he's alive. And that there's actually witnesses. According to the scriptures, over 500 eyewitnesses. That there's evidence that Jesus was crucified on the cross that he was buried in a tomb and that the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty three days later. It's just something that we have to receive as it is. This is how Paul referred to the resurrection. It was a fact. It was an event that took place. Now to the doubting Christian and the struggling Christian, the resurrection can be a stumbling block. A lot of people right now struggle with the resurrection. A lot of people have grown up in this church and entered into adulthood and they hear different things and they struggle with the resurrection. Because if you really think about it, it's a hard pill to swallow. We believe in a God who is crucified and rose from the grave. Now we're used to that. We've been hearing it. You've maybe been learning it since children's ministry. But the reality is, is that is a bold claim. And as you follow Jesus, I guarantee you there will be some points where you will question it because others around you and the world is questioning this absurd claim that Jesus rose from the grave. And if you're doubting or you're skeptical, I just want to appeal to you for a moment that you're not alone. That even the Jewish leaders of the time, that the people of the time, they equally doubted with it. 
They thought it was absurd. Paul thought it was so absurd that he was trying to kill anyone that preached it. Paul, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a religious person, he thought the resurrection was ridiculous. The, 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 the Jewish people, they couldn't even comprehend that God would become a man. That itself was just revolutionary. And that God would go and die on a cross and rise from the grave, they thought it was ridiculous. So not much has changed. Because even today, people think that the resurrection is ridiculous. But what led to Paul's salvation moment? What led to his conversion? Well, a couple things. One is that there were so many eyewitnesses of the resurrection that when Paul would go and he would try to kill them, there was something different about them. And we see this recorded. We've talked about it when in Acts chapter 7 where Paul is there at the death of Stephen and there's something different about this guy. He was an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus and this guy does not die easily. He's dying with a sense of joy and a sense of boldness and a sense of security because there's something different there. He was an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. But the real game changer with Paul was in Acts chapter 9. When he was trying to kill those who were preaching the resurrected Jesus, what led him to faith is that he met the resurrected Jesus. That because the claim is so bold that Jesus himself reveals him to Paul, Paul couldn't help but receive it as a fact. And he placed his trust in Jesus. Now, if you come up after service and tell me that you've seen the resurrected Jesus, we might have to have a longer conversation. But the reality is, is that Jesus, yes, he rose from the grave and you might not have a physical encounter with him. But upon his ascension, he sent the spirit of God to descend upon the church. And I know that the spirit of God will encounter you. And you are sitting in a room, if you're doubting right now, you are sitting in a room with a group of people whose lives have been changed by the resurrected Jesus. Who've encountered the spirit of God and their life is different. There are people in this room who were addicted to drugs and they met Jesus. They had an encounter with the Spirit of God and now their life is different. That's just a fact. There are people in this room whose marriage was falling apart, but God, they met the resurrected Jesus to the person of the Spirit and now their life is different. There are people in this room who are in bondage to sin, who are in bondage to anger, who are in bondage to bitterness. But Jesus, they encountered Jesus through the Spirit of God and their life is different. That's just a fact. And this is why the resurrection is so persuasive. Because it's a fact in history and the fact is, is that people's lives have been changed by the resurrected of Jesus for centuries. Tim Keller picks up on this idea and he says this, quote, They found the resurrection, speaking of this time frame, the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people. They found the resurrection just as inconceivable as you do. The only one anyone embraced the resurrection by then was by letting the evidence challenge and change their worldview, their view of what was possible. Both the eyewitness accounts and the changed lives of Christ's followers was overwhelming. And it still is today. The evidence of the lives changed by the resurrected Jesus, by the Spirit of God, the evidence is overwhelming and it's all around you. It's in this room. We have gone from death to life, being born, being blind to being able to see, from being bound to being free because Jesus is alive. 
See, the resurrection is the ultimate reminder that Jesus cannot and will not be ignored. We can't ignore him. We can't ignore if there's any sense of historical honesty in your life. There is some point where you have to consider the event of the resurrection. You cannot ignore it. World history has literally changed. We divide time by Jesus. We have to face him. We have to face the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead on a specific day from a specific grave at a specific time in history where eyewitnesses were involved and we have their writings today. Jesus cannot be ignored. So Paul preached the resurrection as a fact, but Paul also preached the resurrection as fulfillment. Read with me from verses 32 on. We declare to you glad tidings or good news. That promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children. And that he has raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I've begotten you. And that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. For David, after he served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Remember, Paul's bridge to Jesus, to his audience, the Jewish audience, was David. How Jesus is the fulfillment of a Davidic covenant or a promise that God gave to David. A promise of an eternal or forever kingdom that needed an eternal or forever king. So he shows how Jesus himself is a fulfillment of these promises and prophecies. Here Paul points his listeners specifically to Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, and Psalm 16 to show that the resurrection of Jesus fulfills the prophecies regarding the Davidic covenant. That God had to raise up, for, raise up Jesus in order for there to be an eternal kingdom. You can't have an eternal kingdom without an eternal king. In order, therefore, he be an eternal king, the Savior had to die and resurrect in order for there to be an eternal king. This is Paul's argument. This is Paul's point. He's trying to appeal to them. Now, this is the thing about the Old Testament prophecies. The Old Testament is full of promises and prophecies regarding the future. Regarding the future. And the overwhelming narrative in the Old Testament prophecies is that there is a future that is full of light and not darkness. A future of life, not death. A future of peace and not war. And at the center of these promises is a king. A king who judges righteously and justly. A king who brings peace and order, not chaos and war. And Paul states clearly that this king is Jesus, and his proof is the resurrection. Now here I want to pause, and I want us to enter into the story, into the scriptures. I've spoken really fast, and we went swimming for a very long time theologically. But now I want us to come up. I want us to take a breath of fresh air, And I want us to see what the resurrection means for us personally. What it means to you and I personally. Because this is the thing. The resurrection 
gives us promises about the future. And why that's important to know is this, that we are currently living in a moment of time that people are saying is the most anxious generation of all time. Question, are you feeling anxious this morning? Now, anxiety has to do about worry concerning the future. That's why we get anxious. Someone told me recently, depression is worrying about the past. Anxiety is worrying about the future. We're an anxious people. Because we don't know what the future holds. There's so many different anxious moments. Even in my own life, I didn't really know anxiety until we had our third child. Like, I was always a pretty confident guy. I just, God gave me a lot of faith in my early years, getting married, having kids. But then we had our third. And I just felt so overwhelmed. I felt so incompetent. I'm looking at my kids. I'm looking at myself. And I'm like, how in the world can I be the dad I want to be to my kids? How in the world can I be the, the husband I want to be to my wife? And try to be the pastor I want to be to the church. And I felt so anxious when we had our third. And it was, it was bizarre. It was bizarre for me because I, I wasn't really familiar with anxiety. And all of it had to do with the future. How am I going to provide for them? What schools are they going to go to? Am I going to mess them up? There's all these different anxieties that were coming, and they all had to do with future. I know that there's anxieties in your life. There's financial worries. There's relational worries. There's health worries and health concerns. How is it all going to work out? There's these hosts of anxieties and worries where our future seems uncertain. And then, if that's not enough, we open up our phone. And the world tells us, and culture tells us, and the news tells us, we're on the brink of war. The world's going to collapse. It's going to be the worst year ever. It's like, there's this like bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. And, and then we wonder why everyone's so anxious. Like we got enough worries for myself. And now we have to think about the entire world on a global scale and be worried about every single event in every single country everywhere all the time. And it can be overwhelming. But you see, the resurrection speaks directly into our anxiety because the resurrection speaks directly into the future. That is what the doctrine of the resurrection does. The doctrine of the resurrection gives us insight into the future. It tells us that the future is, number one, light, not darkness. The future is light, not darkness. And that is still a revolutionary worldview. Because right now in this kind of post-Christian environment, there's this nihilistic worldview, which simply means that we came from nothing, we're here from nothing, and we're going nowhere. That your life is an unstoppable trajectory into nothingness and emptiness. And that has been spoon-fed to the culture and to these rising up generations. And then we wonder why everyone's so anxious. Because we're literally being told that your life is meaningless and it's going nowhere. And you might say, oh, that doesn't bother me. But really, 
It really doesn't. Like everything that's good in this life is because it's full of meaning. It's full of relationships. It's full of love. And then just to know that the future is heading to this point where there's going to be nothingness and emptiness. You're telling me that that doesn't worry you? That's hard to believe. It creates a sense of anxiety within the soul, a sense of uneasiness, because it's not what we were designed for. We're designed for eternity. But then the culture also says, like, even when it doesn't come to the afterlife, it says that, like, the immediate future is one of destruction and war and chaos. And even as Christians, we can feed into this doomsday type of culture. Because we do know that there's a judgment to come, but sometimes our focus is all on the darkness. But the resurrection speaks way past that, into the light. That our future is not one of darkness. Our future is of light. Our future is of beauty. Our future is of being in the glory of God, and that is full. It's not emptiness. That's what the resurrection, resurrection speaks of. Speaks of so much more to come. The resurrection also speaks of our future, of it being one of life and not death. It was Billy Graham who said famously, he traveled all the countries in the world preaching the gospel, and he said one thing in every single culture, no matter what, everyone fears death. Everyone fears death. Regardless of the worldview, death is so abnormal. Why? Because we weren't created for death. The resurrection speaks past death. The worldview of us, the worldview of the Christian, the worldview that the Bible gives to us, the worldview of Jesus because of the resurrection is that our future is not one of death and separation and emptiness. It's one of life. That death to the follower of Jesus is a doorway into the resurrection of life. That is what awaits us. And it's only the resurrection that can offer that. No other worldview offers that. The resurrection does. Now, the resurrection also tells this about our future. That our future is one of incorruption, not corruption. That's a point that Paul camps out here for, like, he says this word corruption and corruption like six or seven times. What's going on here? Well, what he's telling us is that he's trying to make this point that Jesus rose from the grave. That David saw corruption. David died. His body decayed. But Jesus rose up incorruptible. His body's not going to see death anymore. It's not going to see decay. And that's important. Because the resurrection tells us that Jesus conquered sin and death. That a byproduct of sin on this world and on our bodies is decay. Anything and everything from cancer to arthritis to a headache is the result of our lives and our physical bodies being affected and infected by the consequence of sin. That we're breaking down. And everyone that's growing older says amen to that. You can feel it. Yesterday I surfed for two hours. It's like, gosh, I'm young. The waves weren't even big. And I was like breathing heavy after two hours. It was like, what is going on? It's corruption. Our bodies are breaking down. But the resurrection tells us this of our future. That just as Jesus rose again in a glorified body, incorruptible, we will be given glorified bodies that are incorruptible. That we will not experience, our future is one of no disease, 
of no cancer, of no headaches, of no sprains, of no limping. Our world is one where our bodies are incorruptible. That in itself is something to rejoice about. But this is the other thing. Our future is one with a body. That in itself is important to know. Because that's different than most other worldviews and religions. Think of the Lion King. What's his name, the dad that died? Is it Simba or is that the kid? Mufasa, thank you. (laughs) Mufasa's up in the clouds. Circle of life. He's here and then he's not there. That's very impersonal. Do you realize that? That's very impersonal. But so many worldviews and religions either has the emptiness idea or this impersonal, you're kind of go back into the ground idea. This pantheistic God is in the nature circle of life idea. But that's a very impersonal idea because the afterlife just becomes like you talking to your tree or something. Like, that's what it becomes. I'm not saying that in a mocking way. That's the idea. But the idea that we are raised into an incorruptible body is so much different. Because a body is personal. You have a body. Your soul is in a body. You are an embodied person. And because you have a body, you can be loved. You can be embraced. You can be known. And the resurrection tells us that that is our future. That we will be given a glorified body where our future is not one that is meaningless. It is one where you will be known. It is one where you will be loved. It is one where you will not be overlooked. You will not be dismissed. You will not be forgotten. You will be known because you are given a glorified body. See, one of the scariest things is to think of a future where there's no love. Where you would never be known. Where there would be no relationship. And the resurrection tells us that we will be given a body so all of those things will only get better. That is a beautiful future. So the resurrection gives us a hope for the future. A hope for the future. That our future is one of light, not darkness. Life, not death. Incorruption, not corruption. One of being known and loved, not forgotten. The resurrection also gives us meaning for the present. Read with me verses 38 to 41. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, and that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you'll be by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. The resurrection not only gives hope for your future, it gives peace and joy for the present. Why? Because I don't need to tell you that you messed up. I don't need to tell you that you failed. I don't need to tell you that you are not the person that you might want to be. The Bible says we've all erred. We've all wronged. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, our life our, our sin, our error, our wrongdoing, it deserves death. But the resurrection tells us that the penalty for our sin, our error, our wrongdoing was taken by Jesus. That he died upon the cross. But then that he rose again. And the resurrection tells this. 
that the sacrifice of Jesus was enough to cover the penalty, the payment for your sin. That you, what that means then, is that you, number one, do not need to live in this frame of mind where you're self-loathing and self-hating and self-deprecating. Beating yourself up because of your failures. No, the resurrection tells and screams to you that you are forgiven. It also tells you, yeah, that's good news. It also tells you that you do not have to prove yourself. You don't need to prove yourself to your boss or your parents or your spouse or anybody. You don't need to prove yourself because proving yourself is just covering your deficiencies, your weaknesses. But what the cross and the resurrection tells us is that Jesus covered all those things. There's nothing that you have to do to add to them. That the sacrifice of Jesus was enough. See this, it's at the cross that we see the love of God on display. The cross reminds us of how much God loves us. But the resurrection proves how God has forgiven us. You see, it was the father who raised the son from the dead. Telling us that his sacrifice was enough to cover the penalty of our sin. It was his stamp of approval. That that's enough. You don't need to do anything. Because Jesus has done it all for you. It was the receipt to show that your payment, your debt has been paid. So the resurrection means that you can have hope for a future, but it also means that you can have peace and forgiveness for the present because you don't need to self-loathe and self-hate. And it also means that you don't need to prove yourself because you're forgiven and you're justified. You're declared righteous because of what Jesus has done for you. This is what the resurrection tells us. Which means that the resurrection cannot be ignored. An honest look prompts this question. Why would you want to ignore the resurrection? The resurrection is so good that it shouldn't be ignored. And as we close today, we see another problem of Jesus. That is this. At the resurrection, the gospel of Jesus always prompts a response. Quickly, verses 42 and on. When the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they are glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as been appointed to eternal life believed. The, the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. The disciples were filled with joy with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to invite the band to come up. We're going to close. I go too long. Hold on. Notice this. There's only two responses. A group of them received and experienced revival. The whole city came out. Because they received the resurrection of Jesus. They couldn't ignore it. And the other group could not ignore it either. They had to reject it. They opposed it. They brought persecution upon it. See, this is the thing. The resurrection of Jesus cannot be ignored. You are either for him or against him. There's no middle ground. Charles Spurgeon says this. 
He said, if Christ is not all to you, he's nothing to you. He will never go into partnership as a part savior of men. If he be something, he must be everything. And if he be not everything, he is nothing to you. My question to you, who is Jesus to you? He cannot be ignored. But even as followers of Jesus, sometimes we ignore him. Today is a reminder that Jesus cannot be ignored. Nor do you want to ignore him because he is the source of a future hope and a peace, and a joy for right now. And your only option is to receive the resurrection, to bow to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, or to reject Him and bow later because He's coming again. And I don't say that in a manipulative way. I don't say that to try and manufacture anything in your life. I say that only because that's what the gospel tells us and teaches us. And the only logical response, if this is true, is to bow now and receive Him, or to reject Him see what happens later.